Luke chapter 4, reading verses 31 through 41 this morning. This is the word of our God. Then Jesus went down to Capernaum, a city of Galilee, and was teaching them on the Sabbaths. And they were astonished at his teaching, for his word was with authority. Now in the synagogue, there was a man who had a spirit of an unclean demon. And he cried out with a loud voice, saying, Let us alone. What have we to do with you, Jesus of Nazareth? Did you come to destroy us? I know who you are, the Holy One of God. But Jesus rebuked him, saying, Be quiet and come out of him. And when the demon had thrown him in their midst, it came out of him and did not hurt him. Then they were all amazed and spoke among themselves, saying, What a word is this? For with authority and power he commands the unclean spirits, and they come out. And the report about him went out into every place in the surrounding region. Now he arose from the synagogue and entered Simon's house, but Simon's wife's mother was sick with a high fever, and they made request of him concerning her. So he stood over her and rebuked the fever, and it left her, and immediately she arose and served them. When the sun was setting, all those who had any that were sick with various diseases brought them to him. And he laid his hand on, hands on every one of them and healed them. And demons also came out of many, crying out and saying, You are the Christ, the Son of God. And he, rebuking them, did not allow them to speak, for they knew that he was the Christ. This is the word of our God. Let's pray. Our Father, we thank you for this, your word. And we pray that you would teach us through it, that we would see Christ and hear him and trust you and know you and love you more fully this day because of it. For we ask it in Christ's name. Amen. So I was looking at this passage this week. I was reflecting a lot on on fear. Uh, fear starts with childhood, but it, it doesn't end with childhood, does it? As children, we probably think there'll be that moment when, uh, like mom and dad, we'll never fear anything again. And then we just learn that our, our fears tend to shift focus a little bit with time. Uh, most of us struggle with uh, two types of fear, especially through every stage of life physical fears and spiritual fears. On the physical side, we have the, the fears of, of sickness or discomfort even when it's not an intense sickness. Uh, many of us fear just pain and discomfort or, or maybe the way that uh, something will incapacitate us from doing things that we want to do. And of course, the end of all physical fear being death. Of course, it can be something else physical as well. We can, we can have physical fears 
about things like appearance and body image. And those, to some, can be just as daunting as death. We struggle with fears that are physical. We also struggle with uh, spiritual fears, temptations. We can be afraid of the temptation we're going to have to face. We can be afraid because of our struggles and failures. We might say, well, could the gospel be true for even someone like me? We can have spiritual fears because, well, God knows how much I've done. How could he save me? Or we can have other spiritual fears of the supernatural where we understand that God created angels. He also created angels who fell. And we can get quite nervous and and fearful. There are strange things that happen that can't be explained. They're terrifying things. And so we we can fear from that as well. And then I, I think there's hybrid fears that span the physical and the spiritual as well. Things like anxiety and depression, where someone might have a physical component uh, that makes them prone to anxiety and depression. Uh, And yet there's also a spiritual side to it, unbelief. And it might be both things, and you need to face that fear in terms of both your doctor and your pastor. Uh, Both in terms of medicine and in terms of asking for prayer in the church. Uh, Kind of a, a hybrid of spiritual and physical fears. Or another one would be grief, wouldn't it? Grief, which can, when you've experienced it for the first time, doesn't it hit you how physical it is? You, you, you never really experienced it. You thought it was all going to be up here in your head and your whole body aches. But there's also the spiritual side of it. The loss and the grief and the thoughts of eternity. We're, we're filled with lives of fear. And all that to set up this thought, Christ, last week, we just considered him make some pretty big claims. Christ claimed good news for the poor. He claimed healing for the broken and the brokenhearted. He claimed liberty and freedom for those in bondage. Big, big claims. Can he bring them about? Is he able? That's the question we ought to ask. If just some random person off the streets walked in here and made all these same claims to us, we should... We should expect that person to give us evidence, to prove it. Big claims. When we, when we have an election coming up and all sorts of claims are being made, we shouldn't just vote based on what the poster says. We, we need to see, well, what has this person done when they served in some other capacity? What does this person show about their beliefs through her or his life in general? And then, of course, we really see when the person gets into office and what happened to those slogans. Christ here makes some big claims. And if we recall that Luke's purpose is to make us certain, 
We need to be certain. Well, that's what this passage is giving us. Luke is giving us certainty, confidence that Christ is able to follow through. And so in this passage, we have both supernatural spiritual fears and physical fears put in front of us. Is he able? And as we consider what Christ does here in this this uh, collage of early moments in his ministry, we can then ask the question, is he then able? Uh, Can we have confidence that he is able to save to the uttermost all who believe? So let's look at these instances here. I want to look at Christ and spiritual fear and then Christ and physical fear in this passage. Of course, the the spiritual fear or terror that we might uh, see here is verses 31 through 37. We have this uh, person who's in bondage to a demon, an unclean demon. We, We can read about what the demons do in other passages. In Mark, we have the description of a demon-possessed man who could break chains, who would ruin his own body, who terrified the neighborhood, who made parents scared to leave their children alone for five minutes and lived out in the tombs. It's quite graphic in one of Mark's instances of this. We see in a lot of places demons convulsing people, bringing about uh, what, what looks like um, uh, real physical problems in their life and bodies, hurting other people. But even if we stripped all of that away, wouldn't it just be a terrible thought, a terrifying thought, to think of being so demon-possessed that you couldn't control your own actions. And then consider that for every person who is demon-possessed, there were... I hadn't thought through the terminology like this. Malachi and I were having a conversation at Christmas time, uh, and uh, our brother used the word oppressed, demon oppressed, meaning for everyone who had a demon within them, there was an entire family, neighborhood, community that had demon oppression going on because they were being tormented by seeing their loved one, their friend, their neighbor going through this. It is a terrible thing. And scripture doesn't write it off as just a bunch of superstitious people. This is reality. And demons continue to be a reality. So what is Christ going to do with this this terror? Here's this demon-possessed man. Did you notice where he is? He's at church. Christ is teaching in the synagogues. He comes into one synagogue, and this man's right there. What a horrible thought. What a terrible thought. Christ 
comes in and meets this man. And this demon, this demon engages in a conversation with Christ. Let us alone. What have we to do with you, Jesus of Nazareth? Did you come to destroy us? I know who you are, the Holy One of God. A couple of things we can note about this statement here, this particular demonic conversation. Uh, one is that the, the Greek is a little difficult to translate. And here, I think the translators have made the choice with the plural, us, to give us the impression that there are multiple demons in this one man. Now, now we know that's the case in some instances. There is, of course, that famous instance of we are legion, and Christ casts all those demons out from one man into an entire herd flock. Herd of pigs? Swine? Anyway. Many demons in one person. And so you can see in the New King James here, the translators said, well, that must be what's going on here. Us is in plural, so there must be a a number of them in this one man. But the Greek is harder to translate, and it could also be taken in a, a broader sense, that this demon is not speaking about this moment alone and this man alone but rather raising a challenge to Christ. What is your goal? What are you here to do in your ministry in Israel to all of us? In other words, it it can be not just this one instance, this moment, but Christ, what are you here to accomplish What do you think you're going to do to all of us? That could even have a flavor then of a challenge. Christ, we saw you in the wilderness with our master, weak and pathetic. And there are many of us, one third of the angels fell from heaven with Satan. There are many of us And we are powerful. What do you think you're going to accomplish? There can be a challenge in the way it's worded. Uh, What have we to do with you, Jesus of Nazareth? Did you come to destroy us? Could almost have the flavor of, do you think you can destroy us? 40 days in the wilderness. Your father didn't come and give you bread. Satan, he owns this world. You didn't even debate that when he said so. It's our territory. What do you think you're doing here? Quite the challenge. And yet notice that even in the midst of this challenge, we we need to note that here, as in all the instances, the demon recognizes Jesus. He recognizes Jesus. Remember, the demons are fallen angels in eternity, not 
that they didn't have a beginning, but having been created before their fall, they were in heaven for an unknown amount of time, seeing, seeing God. Seeing the pre-incarnate Christ. They, they recognize him. And so they declare both his deity and his office in this passage. The Holy One of God, the Christ, the Son of God. Verses 34 and 41. That, that should be a warning to us. It's not a bit of an aside, but it should be a warning to us because there is a confession of the truth here. But I believe it was Ryle who put it so well. He said, we find a confession of the truth, but not a confession of faith. There is a difference, isn't there? Between stating the truth with your tongue and faith, which rests on Christ alone. They, they have the truth, but not savingly. There's a place prepared for them. And they're not the only ones who have access to the truth without faith in this passage. We, we find many, the crowds, are amazed at Christ's words. And they are witnesses to the demon's testimony. But where will they be in the next several years? That amazement at the truth they hear coming from Christ's mouth does not in all of them, or at least does not in all of them initially, lead to faith which lasts the next three years of Christ's ministry. Many will reject him. We need to be warned by this. It it is possible for us to know all the right words, dot all the I's and cross all the T's, and yet the gospel may have no real place in our hearts, wills, and consciences. We have to be on guard about that. We need to be on guard about that if we want just one kind of selfish reason to be on guard about that is that we will never have lasting escape from our fears if all we have is the truth on our tongue but not in our heart. Because the freedom and the release from the bondage of our fears and the healing that we need because of that causes our fears, these are all tied to something more than head knowledge. So we need to gaze on these demons and do more than believe and tremble. We need to have faith in Christ to be the Savior from our fears and our sins. Well, here this demon presents this challenge. It must have been a terrifying thing to behold. And notice what Christ does in the text. The text declares Christ's response. But Jesus 
rebuked him. But Jesus rebuked him. That word rebuke appears three times in our short passage here. And it's not a word that speaks of entering into a debate. It's not a word that speaks of diplomacy. It's the word you use of a dog who's been jumping up on the counter to get food. You rebuke the dog. It's the word you use when your children are being disobedient. You rebuke them for their disobedience. Well, modern America, you might negotiate, but you shouldn't. Rebuke, it's the language of the person who holds all the cards. Who has all the power. This is so significant, isn't it? I've drawn your thoughts, I hope, back to it several times already to get to this point of saying how significant this is because remember, Satan had claimed that the nations and the world were his just one chapter earlier. And at the time, Jesus didn't respond. I think I quoted from Chronicles of Narnia, Aslan saying, it's just words. And it was just words there, wasn't it? Christ doesn't have to debate it with Satan. He's about to prove the reality of whose authority rules heaven and earth. Satan has claimed all this. The demon seems to be uh, emphasizing, you know, we We are here. What are you doing here? What do you think you'll accomplish? (coughs) Excuse me. And Jesus simply rebukes him. And what happens? Does he have the power to rebuke? A single rebuke. And the demon doesn't speak back. The demon doesn't mouth off. The demon doesn't fight. He can't. Jesus says, be quiet, and he shuts his mouth. Do you think the demon wanted to shut his mouth? That's not the point. He hasn't been convinced of anything. Jesus doesn't try to convince him why he should be quiet. He just says, be quiet, and the demon shuts his mouth. He says, come out of that man. And I think clearly implied in Christ's command is, come out and leave the man alone. Don't hurt him. And what does the demon do? Break the man's leg and then come out of it. No, he he leaves and the man is fine. Because Christ's rebuke is the authority. And we need to remember when we think about such terrifying things as demons, that they're creatures. Our world around us would drive into our minds a a yin-yang thought with demons and Christ, that demons are equal to Christ. The black to his white. At the very least, we might be tempted to think this demon speaking about himself and all the other demons, maybe they together have the power of Jesus. Jesus. 
And our text shows they don't have the power as a unit. One third of the angels of heaven fallen in sin cannot do anything when Jesus rebukes them. What, what should that do to our fears? Surely that should give us light in the midst of darkness. Christ rebukes and the demon does what he says. Well, maybe we're tempted to think, well, maybe this is a really weak demon. It's not strong like some of the other ones. And so this is just a unique instance. Christ got away with it this time, but he won't get away with it the next time. Maybe he doesn't have the authority over all demons that he had over this demon. But no, verse 41 comes in and shows that this is not a unique instance. Instead, verse 41 shows us that this is how every encounter between Jesus and a demon must end. And nothing has changed today. If Christ rebukes, the demons still must listen. If you have encountered some terrible thing, I've, I've chatted in the past year or so, I think Bill and I have talked about this a couple of times, because I've, I've encountered and talked with other very square pastors. You know, I'm, I'm very traditional, <clears throat> square pastors that you wouldn't expect to say, oh, we, we've encountered people who seem at least demon-oppressed, if not demon possessed things that we can't control or explain and it can be terrifying. Christ, Christ still from his throne wields all authority and power. He still is the ruler who can speak And without his permission, the demons cannot act. That was the case with Job, wasn't it? One who had the Holy Spirit within him, a believer. And Satan had to get permission to touch him. Things have not changed. Christ will teach that when the Holy Spirit enters, no demon can enter. He, Christ, has all authority. Now, if he has authority there over these terrible demons, which, I mean, if I came across a lion in the woods, I once was walking just at dusk and all of a sudden a lynx came out right up the path between me and my car. I've never been so scared in my life. But a demon's no different than that animal. Still a creature, and Christ is still the ruler. His word governs. And we must remember these things 
when we, when we fear. Now, if this is true spiritually regarding demons, apply the same thought to your struggle with sin, your fear of temptation, and the various other spiritual struggles you have. There is one who speaks and he controls what happens. Apply that to your fears. We come also to Christ and physical fear in verses 38 through 40. Maybe, maybe uh, the basic fallenness of the world, the physical stuff, is outside of our salvation. Have you ever been tempted to think like that? There's the internal, there's the spiritual. That's what Christ isn't concerned about. He's not concerned about your earthly, physical existence. But then he enters the house of Peter and here's this old woman and he's concerned about her physical health. This this account appears in other Gospels as well, but Luke, the doctor, is the only one who tells us about her fever. And he doesn't just say she had a fever. He says she had a high fever. Uh, Literally translated, a great fever. And that phrase, great fever, is actually a technical medical term of the day. It comes directly out of, let's see, Galen. Galen, the Greek uh, medical author. His textbook was the medical textbook in Luke's day. When he trained to be a physician, he would have read Galen if he could get his hands on it. And here he's giving us the technical definition of a great fever in that doesn't just mean it's a little spike or, or something like that. What it, what it means is this person, from a medical perspective, is a goner. This person's not going to make it. Dr. Luke is saying to us, she didn't have the sniffles. She was dead. She was as good as dead. An old woman with this high level of fever and and other symptoms that would have gone along with that to define it as a great fever, she's dead. What does Christ do? He calls for Dr. Luke, and Luke shows up with his medical bag. No. It's the word again, isn't it? And Christ rebuked the fever. I noticed in a few commentaries, they drew the conclusion from that, if Christ is rebuking the fever, oh, this must be an instance of the fever being created by a demon. I think they're missing the entire point of the the passage. The point is, the same mouth that created the world by the word of his power in the beginning has authority over the angels and he has authority still over the fallen creation, the fallen body, the death 
racked body of an old woman. He rebukes the fever. And just like the demon, just like uh, a child caught in their rebellion, Christ rebukes and his word must create a response. The fever must leave. And she is healed. Not only that, but think of how Luke presents this. He doesn't present it as the fever left and she was better but weak and needed to rest and recuperate for a week, which would be quite normal. And then she, then she got up. That itself would be quite the miracle, wouldn't it? But Christ rebukes, the fever leaves, she jumps up and starts cooking. This is a complete healing. This is someone who can heal the brokenhearted. This is someone who can bring good news to the poor. Maybe even the poor who can't afford a doctor. This is one who has authority, full authority, over even the broken physical condition brought into the world at the fall. Well, what about this? Is this a unique instance? Or maybe someone might say, well, it's Peter's mom, mother-in-law, so maybe it was all a setup. But we have verse 40 as well. Then sun was setting and all the people who had sick relatives brought them and healed every single one. All who were sick with various diseases of various levels. And he, he was able to heal all of them. This is one who can come through on his word. Not unique. Such a passage this is. And such a passage that should confront our fears. Christ doesn't always bring healing in this way. Sometimes in the church we get into these extremes. We either think Christ can and will always heal. It will always be his will to heal those who are sick. Or we can go the other extreme and say, he doesn't heal at all anymore. The biblical way to view this is of course to say he is able to heal and often he does and often he doesn't but Romans 8.28 tells us that even when he chooses not to heal it is for the good of those who love Christ it is according to this powerful Christ whether one is healed or not, shouldn't that itself bring you comfort in your sickness? I'm not suffering because Christ isn't able to save. I'm suffering 
because it's the best thing for me. According to the all-knowing, all-powerful Savior who is able to heal me like that, if it be his will. That should give us not only release from the fear of such moments, but also excitement and encouragement to pray for healing. Lord, give what is best. And I know you are able to do it, whatever is best. Well, this word rebuke appears the three times in our text. I think we perhaps need to take that deeply to heart. Not only that it is the means Christ uses against demons and fevers, but perhaps in our fear we need a gentle and loving rebuke from Christ as well. Remember last week I drew our attention to the book of Revelation that we might be spiritually poor, naked, and blind, and yet say, I am rich, well-fed, and clothed. Maybe at times we need that rebuke from Christ in the midst of our fears to trust in him, in the midst of all to know his work within us. Anthony Burgess A Puritan wrote, We have so much self-love and carnal, fleshly confidence in ourselves that we can easily assume that we are what we ought to be. Some Christians rest in knowing the doctrine of the gospel without ever feeling the weight of sin. Perhaps we need Christ's rebuke to feel the weight of sin but also to know with the rebuke, do not fear, believe. Believe. For example, believe our assurance of pardon, that if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just, you could add, able to forgive us our sins. And to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. And then if we reflect that the one who promises this forgiveness is the one who speaks and demons flee. Any fear that would drive off assurance should itself flee. Assurance should come as we consider this Christ. Consider consider this Christ and his power. Dale Ralph Davis writes, he is the Christ who conquers the evil one, and yet the Christ who provides in the home. He is the one who works in the public place, but also enters into our private need. He's a Christ who has all authority, cosmic power. But this Christ cares personally for your fears and about your assurance. He cares 
Although he has the world, the universe on his shoulders, in your fears, know that he comes near to address your need. When you tremble in the dark at night, know that he who is overseeing the whole creation is with you in Christ. And where Christ is, all else must tremble before him. And that brings me to one last thing I want to encourage you with in your fears. In a wonderful little tiny book, a small book on anxiety, author Ed Welsh tells us that if we are to see our fears removed, we must place our fears side by side with faith. And then he reminds us that faith isn't a generic thing, but it must be in something or someone. What he's telling us there is exactly what this passage is showing us here. If you would be free from fear, then you must gaze at Christ. If you gaze at a demon all on its own, you and I would be left to tremble. I don't have as much power as a demon. Just as if I was suddenly in a cage with a group of lions, I would rightly tremble. I don't have as much power as lions. But when we put the two side by side, our faith in Christ beside our fear, then we see the fear in a different perspective, don't we? Here is the one who created the thing we fear has power over the thing we fear, can bind the thing we fear, can rebuke the thing we fear, can drive it away. This is why there are all those stories of Luther trembling and then rebuking. Satan be gone. I'm a baptized man. Luther wasn't saying, I have the power to drive you off. He was saying, I belong to Jesus. This is Christ's territory. I belong to Christ. You have no authority over me because Christ has all authority. We must put Christ side by side beside your cancer. You're cold. Your broken relationships that you don't know how to heal. Put Christ alongside your fears at night and your struggles during the day. And then we see them all in the right perspective. Here is the one who even before his resurrection seems to have had all authority in heaven and on earth. But now, 
having been raised, is given that name above every name, is given the seat, the throne of David to reign forever and ever with all authority and power. And it is before him that every knee will bow. Even the knees we fear the most now. Thanks be to God.